it seems to me axiomatic that if you are going to exercise Christian ministry or mission within a given culture, understanding that culture is imperative if you are to be effective. In our culture, I see some significant shifts happening in these past, I don't know, 10 years or so, maybe more, that I feel like I have identified. Let me lay them out. There's just four specific things I want to talk about today. Shift number one, dishonor toward authority normalized. Shift number two, the death of the expert. Shift number three, the rise of opinions and feelings to the level of importance over facts and truth. And number four, a a meta-narrative of power dynamics and group identity politics taking hold and displacing any other meta-narrative. All right, number one, dishonor toward authority normalized. Now, in the scripture, you find that God has established all levels of society, the nation, the family, the church, in a hierarchy of authority, and that these structures or hierarchies have been established for the common good to maintain a level of order. And we see throughout both Old and New Testament that God treats our reaction or response to his authority personally. The person holding the position of authority may be a turd, but the position of authority still needs to be respected and treated with dignity and our reaction or response to that position God takes as our reaction and response to his authority. So, for example, in the Old and New Testament, our rebellion or our honor toward the ruler or king is taken as rebellion or or dishonor against God himself. In the church, the disrespect shown to church leaders is God takes it personally. Or Jesus said, you guys need to honor and obey the Pharisees and the scribes because they sit in Moses' seat, but don't follow what they actually do in their personal lives. In other words, don't follow the bad example of those priests in their personal lives but do honor their authority as they are operating in that position that God has established. Or in the New Testament, uh, treating the emperor with dignity and respect that is due him is viewed as normative, even though the emperors were godless pagans. Or uh, Paul, when the high priest ordered him to be slapped, he said, God will strike you, you whitewashed tomb. And then somebody said, how dare you speak that way to the high priest? And then he immediately said, oh my word, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize he was the high priest because God says you're supposed to honor those in authority. So there you see the distinction between Paul was responded one way when it was a man, but when he realized the man was seated in a position or a, a, a position of authority, he instantly shifted his tune. And uh, same for parents. Parents are supposed to be treated with respect in, in a marriage. Husbands and wives, there's actually a hierarchy of even within that, strangely enough, countercultural as it is to us, hierarchies of authority are established throughout both Old and New Testament, and I believe to this day they still constitute the most functional and the most peaceful form of, of arranging human relationships. Of course, we see it reflected all through nature as well. Hierarchies become normative. Now, you can disagree with that, but... What I would say is there's shift in our culture, whether you like the idea of treating authority with respect, you could at least agree that in the last 10 years, 20 years, maybe longer, the idea of disrespecting authority, questioning authority, speaking the truth to power, I believe in speaking the truth to power, I believe in making a godly appeal, but what I'm seeing is 
those who are in authority, it is now considered ethical and right to distrust them, to dishonor them, to disrespect them, to talk bad about them, to make fun of them, to belittle them, and to assume the worst about them, rather than it actually being understood that the judge wearing the garb of a judge should be treated with dignity and respect, that the police officer wearing the, uh, the badge of the police officer should be treated with respect, that the referee bearing the uh, garb of the referee functioning in his official capacity should be treated with respect, that the pastor wearing the clerical robes of the pastor should be treated with respect, even if the cop, the judge, the, the umpire, the, the referee, the, the pastor, in their personal lives might not command respect, the position they hold should be treated with respect. And I'm seeing a shift to dishonoring authority as normalized. And I think it's very destructive, and it leads to chaos, and it leads to a lot of grumbling and a lot of bad attitudes. And those things rob our peace and cause us to feel honestly disgusting in our hearts, even though we don't realize that's why. It also, God takes it personally, and if we step out from under the authority structures he has ordained, he considers it pride and rebellion, and he ceases to bless our attitudes and behaviors to the extent that we step out from under his authority, we step out from under his blessing. And I think it bears big consequences. Uh, Worrying feature number two, the death of the expert. And what I mean by this is, there are experts who have much more comprehensive knowledge and specifically trained and lots of years of experience in a given field, be it a cancer doctor or a scientist or a lawyer or a researcher in a given field, With the rise of Google and everyone holding a smartphone, it seems to me that an expert coming out with years of experience and and expertise and knowledge, we think very little of the experts. We don't believe in experts anymore. We think every opinion is just an opinion. What the scientists tell us about global climate change is obviously absurd. What the economists tell us about the dangers of a, a national deficit, like the one we have, we just think whatever. It's just very difficult in the modern world for expert testimony to be taken as expert testimony and having more binding weight in terms of truth, knowing truth, than opinion. Uh, Number three, facts are less important, facts and truth becoming less important than feelings and personal opinions. My feelings are valid and important because I'm important. And, And if your facts make me feel marginalized, then your facts are oppressive and wrong. Right, So that's number three. Personal feelings and opinions are elevated now to a a status as more important than facts and truth. Even I've heard people say things like, well, I'm speaking my truth, and they're just speaking their truth, and everyone should have a right to, quote, speak their truth. Now, it really bothers me to hear the word truth being used in this flippant and imprecise and inaccurate way. When someone said that to me recently, I said, no, 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 we're not talking about truth. I'm speaking my perspective, they might be speaking their perspective, but the only perspective that I think would count as truth is Jesus's perspective. In fact, you don't even know your own heart. Unless the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, illumines your heart, you don't even know your own heart. All of us is trying to seek to be faithful to the truth. At least I think we ought to be. I'm not sure we are, but we ought to be. But yeah, number three, facts becoming less important than feelings and opinions. Number four, this one's a big one, a meta-narrative, which is a big story about what the meaning of life is, the meta-narrative of power dynamics and group identity politics has taken hold as the interpretive view that we have of human history. Our vision right now of human history, what life means is we see a, a white male patriarchy controlling all the power, 
having the positions of influence, controlling the narrative because they're the ones writing the history books and therefore women are oppressed, uh, black and brown people are oppressed, and then you, you can subdivide society more and more and more then it's gay people who are oppressed, then it's transgendered people who are oppressed, and it's intersectionality where it's if you're a woman who happens to be black and also happens to be a lesbian, then you would be the ultimate of oppressed peoples. And no matter how you cut it, what you end up doing is casting a vision that every interaction is not an interaction between individuals who must be treated with value and dignity and worth, but rather every interaction becomes an an interaction between groups, political groups with biases and agendas, and every interaction now, instead of being an opportunity to value individuals, becomes viewed as a zero-sum game, a fight for power with limited resources, limited opportunity. Eventually what you do is you subdivide the culture into so many different oppressed people groups that are offended and morally outraged and who are now rising up and demanding equal outcomes of representation and treatment, what I don't think we realize is in the name of justice, what we will do is become the new oppressors. What I don't think we realize is that we've subdivided the culture not, not small enough. We actually need to subdivide it all the way down to the individual, to where every individual has rights, every individual has value, and every individual needs to be treated with justice and due process and have equal opportunity. The difference between equal opportunity and equal outcome is massive. Saying that we want that our goal is to provide equal opportunity to every individual is a just and right societal goal. To say that we want to provide equal outcomes to every subgrouping rather than individual, that is a dangerous strategy. And I think what it will lead to is like more like the French Revolution where a moral outrage that's not rooted in truth, but rather is rooted in a story we tell to foment rebellion, dishonor, dissent, and rage causes a revenge mindset and a power I must grasp for power for my group to win over against your group instead of the individual, every individual having value and dignity and rights, inherent worth. If you're a Christian and this whole social justice warrior mindset with group identity politics and oppression and systemic flaws is your whole thing, while the Bible has wonderful resources to reveal that oppression is a bad thing and the prophets spoke up against oppression, specifically of the rich oppressing the poor in the 8th century prophets, and Jesus in you know, Matthew 23, religious oppression of the masses with loading people down with religious burdens rather than the actual love of God and, and, just, and the love of mercy and justice, So yes, the Bible has wonderful resources to provide us with a real biblical fight for biblical justice. I do not think it is equivalent. The modern woke social justice warrior stuff with its ever-increasing number of so-called oppressed groups, I do not view that as equivalent in all ways with biblical justice and the biblical resources to fight for God's justice, God's shalom. And I do think that the gospel actually undermines these little subgroupings as our core identity place. When you find Galatians 3.28, for example, saying that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all, what you're doing is, notice where he's subdividing it. He's subdividing it as the individual, and the individual connected with Christ has incredible access to the Father, perfect union with God through Christ, and equal union with each other who are also in Christ. So it's like, He's not subdividing the culture by groupings. He's going all the way down to the individual and saying, 
our connection to Jesus is deeper than family I'm from, race I'm from, gender I belong to, or any other of these things that we tend to use to try to divide. We divide up society, but Christ unites society at the level of the individual and it becomes one thing. And that's massively powerful. I'm not suggesting then you, you um, build a politic on, on Galatians 3.28. What, what I'm suggesting is that it's a danger for the meta-narrative of power dynamics and group identity politics is a danger to displacing the gospel as the meta-narrative of the Christian. And if that happens, we will then try to view social justice as the gospel instead of Jesus as the gospel and his love as the gospel and social justice as one of the applications that we walk out as we are trying to be faithful to the gospel. And, and also, I think we got to be careful not to let secular values infect our efforts to get justice. Again, equal opportunities are not the same as equal outcomes. Equal outcomes becomes oppressive and strange. Okay, so here's where this becomes frustrating to me where you have the media then buying into this stuff and then furiously attempting to avoid being canceled by a a movement within culture that's trying to cancel anything that they deem offensive and reprehensible, morally reprehensible, extremely intolerant of anything they deem intolerant, which is interesting, extremely unloving toward anything they deem having the wrong opinion. And so now the media buys into it, Hollywood buys into it, and is furiously attempting to avoid being canceled and to appear woke by, quote, representing, unquote, each new of these subdivided identity groups equally, even though they constitute a statistically negligible minority of the population, however, representing them equally on, st- on stage and in cinema, which means dramatically exaggerating on, in, on cinema relative to their presence in the culture, is viewed as the new orthodoxy that proves that you're woke. And so what we find, in my opinion, is that ethics that are unscriptural are being normalized through excellent media and art. And it looks to me like Romans 1 is unfolding in real time right before my eyes. Now, do I have a solution to this? Not really today. Today I'm just laying out what I've been seeing. I don't know if I've laid it out very clearly, but here it is for your consideration. 